We'll be back in a moment as we continue now with one incredible story with Mac Tony's After the Martian Apocalypse. That's next on Coast to Coast AM. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. I'm George Norrie. Mac Tony's is the author of After the Martian Apocalypse and the Crypto Terrestrial. Since 2003, he's maintained Post-Human Blues, a blog devoted to Fortean phenomena, ufology, technology, Mac has spoken in the United States and Canada, hosted an episode of Vision TV's Supernatural Investigator, and appeared in the award-winning UFO documentary Best Evidence, Top 10 UFO Sightings. Here he is on Coast to Coast AM. Mac, how are you? I am doing quite well. Good. Good to have you with us today. Tell me about you. How'd you get involved and interested in UFOs? Must have been since you were a kid. It yeah. happens to all of us, doesn't it? Yeah, and it seems like with a lot of people, it goes back to a very young age, and uh, no different with me. I can't trace it to any particular instance in my life, any particular stimulus, but uh, but yeah, it's just been there. It's just this kind of uh, ambient interest uh, as long as I can remember. You have come across some incredible uh, stories, I'm sure, and as you continue to investigate, uh, is there one in particular that has uh, just driven you wild? Driven me wild? Hmm. Uh, a case that I return to again and again when I write, uh, you know, speculative essays on on the UFO occupant phenomenon is uh, the Antonio Villas Boas case uh, from Brazil, and there have been, you know, several different interpretations about what might have happened, whether it was a hoax, uh, etc. But I'm tantalized by that case. Um, it's got some very intriguing overtones to it that uh, continue to, I, I think they're compelling. Tell me a little bit more about that case. Mike. It's a case in, in Brazil. Uh, a farmer um, cited an object on, I believe, three previous occasions uh, during the during the previous week. Uh, one night when he was out plowing the field, the object landed. Uh, he was accosted by uh, three individuals, I believe, um, and taken aboard the landed object. And uh, ultimately, it had some sort of uh, sexual liaison with this uh, strange humanoid female inside. And the case got my attention, I suppose, because I found it rather strange that there'd be any compatibility between species if we were dealing with uh, extraterrestrials. The case doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. The case was originally censored because it was pretty sensationalistic, and uh, not even the UFO community took it seriously. It was archived by the uh, by APRO, uh, Jim and Coral Lorenzen at the time, mm-hmm. and uh, ultimately appeared in their book uh, UFO Occupants, uh, kind of a classic read. And uh, but once the Hill abduction became big news, Betty and Barney Hill's abduction by apparent extraterrestrials, the uh, V.S. Bose case kind of cropped up, became acceptable, and it was acceptable to uh, to think that we might be dealing with actual occupants instead of just metallic vehicles or, or whatever. So it's, it's a neat case with neat historical overtones, and uh, I suppose one of the reasons I like it from from an academic perspective, is because it's uh, it wasn't out there contaminating the meme the meme pool, um, like like the Hill case has been has been alleged to to have done. It was just kind of quietly filed away, and people just kind of cleared their throats and and turned away from because of the kind of kind of embarrassing implications. Um, but looked back on uh, from from now. Uh, and looking at it in, in the context of this very complex phenomenon, uh, it, it appears to make uh, a certain degree of sense. And, and I think perhaps it sheds some light on, on what might be going on. 
Mac, we get so many different theories about the origin of ETs and extraterrestrials, whatever they may be. You know, we, we hear that they could be coming from other planetary systems, from other dimensions, from within this planet, um, that their government, military, uh, it's a hoax. Um, and, and even some people have some religious overtones to this, claiming that they might be fallen angels or demons, for example. What do you what do you prescribe? To? Well, I think it's a combination of, of almost all of those things overall. Um, uh, as far as you know, government uh, government vehicles being being tested. Uh, most UFOs are, I believe, probably IFOs. But I think there does remain a core phenomenon that uh, that warrants very uh, rigorous interest. And uh, those are the ones that I'm interested in, and those are the ones that I think I think most UFO researchers are, are interested in. And as far if we're dealing with a non-human intelligence, and I think that's I think that's the most compelling residue we're left with. Um, then I'm not sure what we're dealing with. However, uh, the extraterrestrial hypothesis uh, has enjoyed uh, quite a bit of popularity since the uh, modern inception of the UFO phenomenon in the, in the late 40s, early 50s. And we've kind of stuck with that. And uh, I guess my complaint would be that we've, that we've um, kind of reveled in the extraterrestrial hypothesis as, as the best explanation for the truly unidentified saucer sightings. And I think that's not necessarily the best case. I think as the decades have, have, have gone on, the universe has become a stranger, stranger place, uh, much more pregnant with possibility. Uh, for example, uh, just as just one example, um, the science of parallel worlds. This is now, this is now a credible cosmological subject, uh, whereas just a, a couple decades ago, it really wasn't. But now it's talked about routinely. Instead of talking about a universe, we now talk about a multiverse. So in the same in the same kind of vein, I I, I have to wonder if the extraterrestrial hypothesis is necessarily the best hypothesis for what we're seeing. It could very well be part of of the mystery. We we, we could be dealing with myriad overlapping phenomena that we attribute to the same source because it's so strange and our minds really don't know how to how to place this in a category because we're dealing with something that seems to defy easy categorization. We don't have we don't even have a terminology for a lot of this stuff that we're dealing with. So we try very desperately to peg it into little convenient uh, uh, pigeonholes. But uh, I like the idea that we could be dealing with a, with a with an intelligence that's indigenous to our own planet. Um, and hmm. I've called this intelligence crypto-terrestrial, um, simply for lack of a better term. And that term wasn't actually coined by me. It was coined by someone commenting on my, on my blog uh, about three years ago, I think. But uh, it, it's one of those theories that sounds very shady and, and strange, and it kind of harkens back to the, the ideas of, of Richard Shaver and the hollow earth, like you mentioned. And um, Obviously, this is an established fact, but I think it's an option that warrants some sort of investigation. Could we be sharing the planet with um, an intelligent non-human species that we don't know about? And could UFOs be a manifestation of this species? And um, in the and end, could, I, and I, they could have been here a long time, Mac. Exactly, they could have been here as long as long as us, or perhaps quite longer. What's the premise of After the Martian Apocalypse? After the Martian Apocalypse is a speculative look at Martian enigmas um, and the case for taking a serious look at them. Uh, I don't pretend to know that they are artificial or, or aren't, 
But I think several of these formations we're looking at on the Martian surface that have been reimaged by the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter look for all the world like potential archaeological sites. And I think if we saw a lot of these places on Earth, there would be no question. We would send geologists and archaeologists to check these out. But since they're on Mars, they're, they're um, excluded from, from consciousness. They're just shoved aside and, and labeled as geological formations. And there's little, there's little true scientific follow-up. And I think that's uh, a catastrophe. I think that we're dealing with something potentially quite revolutionary. And I'd like to see some furthered interest in this from the academic community, the anthropological community, even the artistic community, I think, has something to bring something to bear on this. And uh, it's, just a, it's just a fascinating subject in, in its own right. And the implications are, of course, extremely unsettling. Let's definitely get back to that uh, next hour because that is a major story. And, of course, you echo a lot of what Richard C. Hoagland, Mac, has believed for, you know, he's a number of years now. So we'll get, we'll get into that. With, with, with the UFOs, let me tell you what's the, the area that is puzzling to me and, and bothers me the most. It doesn't seem like we get to the end. We don't seem to get to the finish line with them. We have great stories. We have, in some cases, incredible eyewitness testimony. Uh, we don't have a tremendous amount of physical evidence. At least the public doesn't. Uh, what government has, who knows. But will we ever get these answers, Mac? That's the thing. Will we ever get these answers to what they are? Yeah, I'm tempted to think that we're dealing with the phenomenon that deliberately masks itself and keeps one step ahead of us. Uh, it's rather like what uh, um, Chris O'Brien talked about, the, the trickster element at work. And whatever this phenomenon may be, it's, it does seem to behave like uh, like a trickster. It's something playing us along, uh, like a carrot uh, held before us, and we keep marching towards it like the, like the proverbial mule. And so, yeah, whether we will ultimately be able to understand what the UFO phenomenon is is an interesting question. Maybe, maybe that... Maybe we're not dealing with a thing in the, in the traditional in the traditional sense of the word thing. Maybe it's not a palpable puzzle with with a resolution that we can comprehend. Maybe we're dealing with something so alien, uh, so foreign to our nervous systems that we simply lack the perceptual acumen to to ever understand it. You know, we're, we could be dealing with with something far beyond our current uh, any paradigm that we that we currently have. Sure, and. But, but I think we can learn from its effects. I think we can learn from its effects on witnesses, uh, the physical evidence that you mentioned, and, the, and there is some, not as much as we'd like, but there is physical evidence uh, to provide sufficient proof that we're dealing with a physical phenomenon. It's not entirely psychological. It's not entirely hallucinatory, certainly, although those both have something to bear on the, on the uh, problem. But in any case, we're dealing with a legitimate scientific enigma, and uh, it like with the Martian anomalies I mentioned, where it's it's embarrassing, frankly, that uh, the academic and scientific communities aren't addressing this with the rigor that I think it certainly deserves. No, if anything, they make fun of it. And... Exactly, they make fun of it and uh, and ridicule it. But at the same time, you have people in the background who aren't as visible, and uh, they're quietly interested. So you have this invisible college element, and it's the same with Mars anomalies. So there's an interesting sociological point to this as well that uh, that needs to be 
exposed. It needs to be brought to the surface of you know, so it so it achieves a, a much better a much better um, showing among among the lay audience. And I think that's ultimately that's going to that's going to establish a better a better dialogue. Better scientific and a better. I think so too, Mac. When we come back, let's talk more about this theory that they might be coming from within this planet. I'm George Norrie. We'll be back in just a moment on Coast to Coast AM. For just 15 cents a day, pennies, you can sign up for Streamlink and get downloading and podcasts and also the brand new feature as well. Now, special feature the iPhone, iPod Touch. Uh, it really works wonders for Streamlink members uh, on their own mobile device. And it's also free to all users of the iPhone and for other features as well. And there's an alien game. It's Alien Abduction that one of our own listeners created, and it's incredible. So if you're interested in Streamlink, just uh, go to coasttocoastam.com. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. I'm George Norrie, our special guest tonight, Mac Tonese. He's the author of After the Martian Apocalypse and the Crypto Terrestrials. And let's get into some of these theories. It is fascinating, Mac, to assume that these ETs are coming from within the planet. Now, you earlier talked about maybe they were extraterrestrials living within this planet. So, you know, I'm I'm taking the assumption that they came here a long time ago. But what if they are just merely earthbound creatures that live there? Well, I take the I take the standpoint that they are they they evolved. In conjunction with us, and in, in fact, they might be human in some essential respects. Uh, so, the word alien. Uh, when I use the word alien to describe these these hypothetical beings, uh, I mean that in the true sense of just other, not necessarily extraterrestrial. Uh, we tend to associate the word alien with um, with coming from outer space, and I don't think that's necessarily the case. Um, uh, the evidence suggests uh, a, a bipedal humanoid species uh, that's very recognizable, that even uses human-like gestures and mannerisms, and even displays a, a pretty good familiarity, familiar, excuse me, familiarity with our language. Uh, the Hill encounter, I think, is a, as the prototypical alien abduction. It's interesting to look at the uh, the way that the mannerisms and the way that these beings behaved when they abducted these two these two humans. And the very theatric nature, of the, the in the way, the very theatric way in which the uh, the abduction unfolded, um, the, showing the star map to Betty Hill, for example, sure. having the kind of lengthy, lengthy clinical discussion with her, explaining you know what the aliens were doing here and why. Uh, when I look at these these accounts, and not only the Hills but lots of others, um, I'm, I'm struck by how unlike. How unlike a genuine extraterrestrial space civilization this seems like. It seems like something closer to home. It seems like, uh, again, it's, it, maybe it's that trickster element at work. But if we are dealing with uh, a palpable phenomenon, a flesh and blood species, is it, is it inconceivable that we're dealing with something that evolved right here on Earth and lives among us? And I realize it's an extremely paranoid idea, and it would seem to fly in the face of, of anthropology and, and evolution as we know it. But uh, and that's I guess, I guess that's kind of the challenge I present in uh, in my forthcoming book, The Crypto Terrestrials, is uh, is is this something that's potentially testable? You know, could there be uh, some sort of remnant species um, that survives on this planet and hides its own existence? And I think a very thorough reading of the UFO literature suggests that there might be something to this idea. Maybe not. 
maybe it is extraterrestrials. Maybe it's something even weirder. Maybe it's um, some sort of some form of symbiosis with beings from another dimension, whatever that might uh, entail. But I think that the idea that we're dealing with um, humanoid beings, uh, physical physical beings that are alien, uh, but nonetheless terrestrial, uh, deserves some attention that it really hasn't gotten. Some authors have touched on it, Jacques Vallée certainly, John Keel right. uh, in his ultra-terrestrials, and uh, those are both very useful starting points, but perhaps we need to dig a little deeper. Well, Vallée calls them messengers of deception, uh, and he has changed over the years. You know, uh, a long time, or even that movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind that was based somewhat on his his experience, the Frenchman playing his part, mm-hmm. basically, uh, he's changed. He, he, he no longer believes that they're ETs from other planetary systems, that, that they are messengers of deception. When he first began researching UFOs, he was reasonably confident that the mystery would be solved, that they'd start looking at cases, and they would probably find that it was an extraterrestrial invasion. I'm using the word invasion. I don't mean that it's alarmist. Sense, but <laughs> But that we were dealing with visiting extraterrestrials, and he thought that was a you know a good hypothesis, and that might be borne out by a by a sophisticated study. But uh, that hasn't happened. Uh, like you mentioned, this phenomenon seems to be deliberately elusive. It keeps uh, it keeps evading us one way or another, uh, to the point where it looks like we're never going to solve this, and that's led to well the exopolitics movement. That's led to this notion that if we keep Asking the government, the government will unveil the truth. Well, certainly the government knows some things about the about the UFO phenomena that it's not uh, re- revealing openly, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it knows what's going on. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's someone who knows the entire picture. I could be wrong on that. Part of me kind of wishes I was wrong on that, but I don't. I don't buy into that rather X Files vision of the government as this monolithic entity that is hiding the truth in a warehouse, all the. Um, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. You, you know, I had an opportunity uh, this weekend to watch The Mist, Stephen King's Mist. Excellent movie. And it is a great movie. And, you know, I, I like to wait until they come out on DVD or they hit the big screen at the, at the big screen for your house. And uh, so I don't go to the movies a lot. But it, it, it was it was a movie that also makes you think. There was an area within the movie, Mac, where they talked about how scientists were playing around and experimenting, and they opened up a window, a portal, and these creatures came through. And is that conceivable with what we're seeing today? Some kind of a portal is open. Then they come Maybe through. that's why they shut down the LHC. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> I don't think it's, point. I don't, it's, uh, it's a fun notion to play with, and uh, I don't think we're there yet. <laughs> I think uh, we're making, like, the, the whole idea of parallel universes, um, where that's become that's becoming a commonly used term, um, thanks to string theory and other efforts like that. Uh, the idea of a multiverse that we exist simultaneously with like soap bubbles within soap bubbles, connected other soap bubbles, and these are all uni- individual universes that are constantly merging. This has become a, a rather uh, cut and dry. Well, not cut and dry, but it's become a rather commonplace. Uh, thing to talk about, whereas only just a few years ago it would have sounded ludicrous. So while there might be some reality behind what they're talking about, I don't think that we have the, the energy, number one, to open up a, a portal into another another universe. But I guess that doesn't mean that someone else hasn't. Uh, you know, one, one ex- 
possible explanation for the UFO phenomenon would be that uh, maybe uh, our brothers and sisters or our future selves in some other in some other world have developed a technology that allows them to uh, open a window and, and come through, and that's not without some appeal. Uh, I'm not sure if it explains everything, but uh, certainly if we if we were able to locate uh, a single point. If there is indeed just one window open, uh, that would certainly go a long way towards explaining this. Uh, wouldn't it be fun to, to uh, go into that window? Wouldn't it be fun to plunge headfirst into that? As long as you can come back. Visit their other world. Yeah, and then come back and, and report back. Kind of like uh, the scenario in Contact with Jodie Foster. The descriptions of these ETs come in an incredible variety. We, we hear the greys, praying mantis-type looking creatures, Nordiques, they look like us. Um, you know, they have the same physical structure. Then we have reptilians. What's your take on what they might look like? My take is that these beings, the gray serves as a useful template for looking at all of them. Uh, reading old accounts of occupants before the gray alien became the consumer archetype that it is now, you still find accounts of beings that are tantalizingly like the grays. Uh, the woman encountered by Antonio Dios Boas that I mentioned, uh, if you take away her hair, uh, she would look very much like the being on the cover of Willie Strieber's Communion. Uh, she had large eyes. They weren't black, but they were nonetheless large. Uh, very minimal nose and a slit-like mouth with no lips. And that's a very strange detail for someone to come up with if they were describing um, a sexy female figure, uh, which, which some skeptics have, have, uh, have uh, accused the Boas of doing. So that's just one. There are others, you know, being seen by the roadside that have this certain a certain character where you read it now looking back on you know decades now of, uh, of watching gray like aliens being the expected alien you know when you see a flying saucer on television the mental image is that it's filled with these little spindly gray big-headed big-eyed aliens that's just become what we expect but uh, it's not necessarily uh, a modern phenomenon to expect aliens to look like this um, the template, the, the the gray anatomy, seems to recur, uh, going back quite a quite a long time, and that makes me wonder if if there is something to it, if it's more than just a metaphor, or more than just um, uh, more than just a, a kind of a science fictional caricature for something that we're not otherwise able to address. So the grays seem there seems to be some validity to that. Now they are very minimal. And that very minimalism makes me rather suspect that the grays are a literal interpretation of what we're seeing. Mm -hmm. It could be a simplified. You know, the human mind t tends to focus on the most prevalent um, for details. In this case, the eyes and the the lack of a mouth and, and the very minimal nostrils and uh, the lack of lack of uh, sometimes clothing. They'll just the very bare, Spartan appearance of these beings suggests uh, that you know they are, to, in a certain sense, kind of caricatures. Uh, maybe embellished or by our, by our imaginations. But that doesn't mean that we're not seeing anything. So, I've always thought the greys were like robots, man. Yes, they're described... Uh, well, it's strange because, depending on who you speak to, some people describe them in very stridently roma uh, robotic terms. They describe them as behaving as as machines, moving even moving in lockstep. And then other people describe them as very compassionate and very uh, warm, giving creatures, which is kind of the opposite of robotic. 
Um, so not having seen one personally, I couldn't offer really any particular insight on that. Other than that, there seems to be a, a more or less coherent picture of these beings, kind of a composite portrait of these beings as uh, kind of impo impoverished, sickly, uh, frail. Uh, whether that means they are sickly or frail, I don't know, but they appear that way to us. Uh, one thing that I think is intriguing to note is that the greys would seem to be ideal astronauts. If we are indeed dealing with entities from another planet or entities uh, that have grown to occupy very resource-scarce habitats, then this very spindly physique would be, would be quite ideal because it would entail that they don't use much, they don't eat much, that their physical demands are, are very few compared to ours. So in that sense, maybe there are robots or genetically engineered or, or bred to be like this. And that begs the question of what they want with us. If they're aliens, what good is DNA for them? I mean, you could always argue that alien anthropologists would have an inherent interest in our genetic structure because of the novelty involved. You know, if we met aliens on, on Mars, for example, we'd probably want to take DNA samples, you know, see what they were made of and, and find out if there was a common ancestry and etc. But uh, you have all these accounts of bedroom abductions with kind of a, with kind of a sexual implication. And uh, it's, it's all rather creepy and sensationalistic, but it also begs the question that are we genetically compatible with these beings? Sure. It, it is so, bizarre. It is bizarre. No, it's absolutely bizarre. It's, uh, and, it's, and it's quite alarming. And I think there is a genuine signal in there. I think there's lots of noise, sure, but there's noise with any, with any inquiry. And uh, if we, I think we're dealing with it with a physical, something that can be physical. It might not be entirely physical. But, you know, we hear lots of accounts of, oh, they're inter interdimensional travelers. And that's an interesting idea, but what's that, what's that really mean? Throughout this entire planet, we are getting millions of people who claim to be abducted. It, 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 it's, it was coming up at a barbecue I went to this weekend. They were asking me if I believed it. And I said, I haven't experienced it. But there are a lot of people with credibility who have, you know, who have, truly felt and believe that they've been abducted by these extraterrestrials or these creatures or entities, whatever they may be. And sure, some of this may be made up. Some of this may be part of the brain. Uh, some of this could be mental illness. But then there could be these cases that are actually bona fide. They're happening to these people. But it's happening worldwide, Mac. And that, to me, is, is truly incredible. Yeah, not as incredible as it would be if we lacked a global media infrastructure, but it's still fascinating. There was a case in Zimbabwe where the, where the people saw these entities, and they described them in culturally relevant terms. In other words, they didn't describe them as aliens from outer space, which is what a typical American would say after seeing these things. They described them as the ghosts of their ancestors, but yet they described the prototypical gray alien wearing silvery suits, riding in these metallic objects. So I find that very, very interesting. And a question that arises to me is, well, they described them in you know, distinctly different cultural terms. The context was different. But is one term necessarily even more valid than the other? You know, to, to us, they're extraterrestrials. To the people in Zimbabwe, they were um, spiritual entities. You know, maybe, maybe neither explanation, neither interpretation is accurate. Maybe we're dealing with something different. You know, it, it might seem naive or 
or whatever, even primitive to think, oh, they're, you know, the spiritual entities, ghosts of ancestors, yeah, right, whatever, they're aliens. And that's a very typical Western response, I would suppose. But, um, you know, just because we think we have the answer, and it might seem perfectly logical, well, we're dealing with beings from another star system um, visiting us for whatever purposes, nefarious or otherwise. Um, but I think that I think this is an opportunity to look at this phenomenon in the more humbling light and uh, to recognize that perhaps we don't have the answer. Perhaps the extraterrestrial hypothesis, despite its prevalence, despite its seeming logic, and there is a certain logic to it. I mean, if we were to uh, continue exploring space, we would probably visit other planets, and eventually, like in Star Trek or a good science fiction novel, we're going to encounter another species. And I would predict that would, that would indeed happen if we if we were allowed to roam the galaxy like these like these alleged extraterrestrials seem to be able to. But as you as you mentioned, though, yeah. the big the big case of Barney and Betty Hill seemed to push this to the forefront, put it into the light. You know, look, magazine did a story on them, and, and it truly began to become an incredible story that so many people read about and heard about. Yet. This alien-human hybridization program seems to be ongoing. David Jacobs thinks there's something wrong here, something evil behind some of this. How about you? I don't see anything necessarily evil going on. Um, I've read Jacobs' work, and I find it fascinating, but I can't help but wonder if we're dealing with something. I kind of, I guess I'm returning to something I said earlier, that uh, we're dealing with something that's so beyond our our um, our neurological hardwiring that we're unable to address it that we're unable to perceive it. I mean, we evolved in a very um, compromised environment. Our brains are essentially uh, fancy organic um, um, hazard avoidance machines. You know, they're they're made yeah. for, they're wired to uh, perceive patterns quickly before the person gets killed by you know by a marauding animal or whatever, or clubbed to death by a fellow human being. Um, and from a certain outlook, our brains are not terribly sophisticated. So what would an intelligence so beyond us look like? How would we perceive it? It might take the, fall, into the, fall into the basic domain of the uh, quintessential psychedelic experience. You know, and I think, there is, I think there is an interesting congruence between accounts of people who take... Uh, Doses of LSD or DMT. Or magic mushrooms or anything. Or magic like mushrooms like Graham Hancock has done, like Terrence McKenna has done, or Daniel Pinchbeck. And they, they report back with, but with reports of these uh, strange bug like creatures sometimes. Not always. But uh, here's an avenue for research. Here's something that we could possibly even test in a laboratory, and this has been done to, to a limited extent. Um, but I would recommend that this would be done more aggressively. Uh, because if we are dealing with with a phenomenon that has uh, decided implications for consciousness itself, the fact that we would be able to isolate a certain chemical compound, in the case of DMT, something that's secreted naturally by the brain, uh, that's that's really exciting, you know. And if we could make some sort of breakthrough, um, of course, that's all very speculative, but but it's not entirely impossible. And uh, if there is a terrestrial connection, if we are dealing with beings that evolved right here on Earth and share the same essential chemical makeup, um, that would 
my, I guess the question I would have is, do these beings use DMT? Uh, are they able to access hmm. realms of reality that would seem fanciful or, or even mythological to us because of uh, access to a certain chemical? So that's well, a question that un- remains unresolved. We'll be back. We'll talk more about this, Mac, and also we'll get into your uh, other work after the Martian apocalypse. I'm George Norrie, back in a moment on Coast to Coast AM. Our guest tonight, Mac Tonys, author of After the Martian Apocalypse and the Crypto Terrestrials, and we'll be back with Mac and much more on Coast to Coast AM. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Mac Tonys, our special guest tonight. We'll take phone calls with Mac next hour as well. How do you see the human race in the next 100 to 200 years, Mac? Very likely no longer the human race. And that could be a very good thing or it could be a very bad thing. Uh, It kind of depends on your perspective. But uh, I foresee the human race either merging with its technology to the point where we'll no longer technically be homo sapiens anymore, we'll be something new and different, or we might not make it. I think we're living at an excruciatingly crucial point in in history. I mean, not too many times in history has there been an, uh, a time like this when when we either make it or break it. I mean, once 70,000 years ago, there were an estimated 5,000 humans on the planet. And uh, we could be approaching a point that's uh, comparable to that. And uh, that's that's rather frightening. Hopefully it won't be that bad. Uh, I'd like to, the, opti- the optimist in me wants me to think that... Uh, that it won't get that bad at all. That it will that it will get better. That things will that things will improve. But that's uh, uh, kind of a weird. I kind of walk the edge on that one because I'm really not. I'm not sure. I'd, I'd say uh, as far as the glass half empty, glass half full. I'm probably somewhere in the middle, unable to make up my mind which glass I'd pick. Ah, uh, but uh, you know, whichever way you do pick. Um, it's going to be a remarkable 100 to 200 years. Absolutely. <laughs> it's going to be an epic, uh, an epic unparalleled 200 years or 100 years. Uh, time seems to be going faster, at least subjectively. Um, Moore's Law has kind of seen that out on the technological front, whether, whether, that will, uh, whether human consciousness will, re- will respond uh, to, to accompany that uh, is an interesting question that uh, remains unresolved. But certainly we seem to be feeling the effects of history in a much faster way, uh, made possible at least in part because of this electronic nervous system that we have now that the planet has. And it's conceivable that the planet might begin to wake up um, or has already begun the process of waking up and becoming aware in, in a way that it has never been aware before. Um, sometimes I'm I'm tempted to draw a parallel between James Lovelock's uh, Gaia hypothesis that mm-hmm. suggests that the Earth is a big homeostatic organism, self-contained, uh, takes care of itself, and in uh, humans might be epiphenomenal. We might just be little maggots on the surface of the planet, but uh, that's not necessarily a diminishing thing. Um, we could be building something bigger and better than ourselves that could very well supplant us. And some people react to the prospect that we might be replaced by robotic surrogates or some sort of artificial intelligence that encircles the globe uh, as a, a negative development because our, our media generally depicts it in apocalyptic terms, the Terminator movies, for example, or the Matrix 
But, uh, you know, if we, get, if we give rise, if we are a transitional state between carbon-based intelligence and something more capable and more compassionate and, and, and wiser, then I don't see a huge problem with it. I don't take it personally. Um, I mean, of course, I'd like life and intelligence to to uh, keep existing. Sure. But uh, but if, if it's not necessarily carbon based, if it's not necessarily us, then then so be it. I'm not I'm not exactly troubled by that by that notion. I think some people are. Um, but I mean, evolution has never been static. And things have always been in flux, and we've only existed. And I say we, I mean the, the human race. I mean the human race is just a quick little blip in the, on the radar of, of evolution. So I can, I guess, I can state with a reasonable amount of confidence that it's not going to be the same kind of of us that's that's going to be walking the earth in 200 years, or for that matter, navigating the solar system in 200 years. But if we can survive the next 50 to 100 years, I would tend to think that things will be very good indeed. Is that a big if, though? I think it's a big if. I think there's obviously it's a, it's an area that's been uh, challenged and debated uh, quite quite noisily in the last in the last say ten years. Uh, the idea that the human race might be at at the point of an existential crisis um, and could conceivably wipe itself off the face of the earth or fall prey to a cosmic accident, say a meteorite collision or something like that. Um, yeah, I mean that's it's that's a serious subject, and I've never it's it's reaching a it's reaching a a point in, in in scholarly debate that I've never seen before. So it's being taken seriously, and uh, the idea of that we're doomed, at least in potential, is uh, is is becoming a mainstream idea. And I think this whole 2012 phenomenon has kind of catalyzed that, and in the public mind, at least. I think that's. Uh, I think this this infatuation with apocalyptic scenarios is uh, healthy in in a certain respect. Sure. Um, well, but well, you know, I've I've heard the debate too on both ends, where some people think it's going to be an apocalypse. Others believe it's an era of enlightenment. Uh, yet most people want to hear about the the catastrophes that could uh, hit us. Absolutely. Catastrophes make great special effects on cinema screens and in the human imagination, I think. And uh, I think uh, kind of a collective fascination with uh, a destructive apocalyptic scenarios is, in a certain respect, a good thing. Um, because at least there is a, a sort of acknowledgement that there is an issue. On the other hand, it's also probably the least imaginative approach to take. Uh, it takes a lot more intellectual gusto, for example, to envision a uh, utopian future. Sure. Uh, there are some very some very positive technologies being developed and already already developed that uh, would allow us to continue in a much grander sense, a much more robust and vigorous way uh, in the, on the planet. And uh, we don't see too many movies exploring these possibilities. So I wish the apocalyptic movies, the the uh, savagely uh, disastrous apocalyptic movies would share some screen time with some more liberating scenarios. That would be my my complaint with with Hollywood's treatment of the idea. Mac, have you looked at folklore in direct relation to ETs? I think I think if you're if you're to investigate the UFO phenomenon, a nice look at 
the folkloric pa- parallels is, is pretty essential. And that's something that you don't find a lot. I, I read, looking at reading the books of, of your kind of old school uh, UFO researchers, you find that they come from a, a very nuts and bolts perspective. Right. And there's the, nothing the that's really wrong with that, but it's limiting. Uh, you know, there have always been references, for example, uh, to like leprechauns and little people. And are, are people looking at other entities? Or are they looking at ETs possibly? That's uh, Well, one idea is that, the, you know, the leprechauns, the little people, the fairies, every tradition, uh, every uh, tradition on the planet has a history of little people uh, coming from the sky usually. And they usually have an interest in human reproduction, strangely enough. And this seems to be what we're seeing with the UFO phenomenon, uh, beings with an interest in reproduction, and they happen to be small in stature as well. So it's in keeping with this long tradition. And there are different ways of approaching this. One way of approaching it is that, oh, okay, that, you know, these people in history, they were seeing aliens and, and seeing them in, the, in uh, their own mythological context. They were seeing them in light of what they could handle. Uh, the other the other avenue that was explored by by Jacques Vallée in his book uh, Messengers of excuse me uh, Passport to Magonia right. was that uh, we're dealing with a phenomenon that's none of the above. Uh, it's an alien stimulus, and we don't know where exactly it's coming from. And each culture is seeing something that to them is perfectly valid, and to us we're seeing it, and it takes the form of space travelers because that makes sense to us it would be absurd for us to see little magical beings because that doesn't uh, that doesn't jive with uh, western western science western materialism it's an outdated paradigm so just because the aliens appear to be space travelers at least in in many respects doesn't necessarily mean that they are we could be dealing with something even stranger and that's that's a, a problem that i've attempted to address with this uh, crypto terrestrial hypothesis you know could it be dealing with the species that evolved here on earth um that has deliberately insinuated itself into our myth- mythologies into our folklore uh in an attempt to disguise itself but at the same time perhaps exert some form of control over our social systems. Um, and again, this is kind of uh, Jacques Vallée's uh, idea of a psychosocial thermostat or control system. And that it's kind of an ominous notion. It's not necessarily something you'd like to think about, that you know, human existence is some sort of uh, um, kept on a dial, and there's someone turning the dial, mm-hmm. keeping everything in accordance with some ideal of which we know nothing. Um, but maybe that's maybe that's a, a good thing. Maybe that's benign. Maybe maybe this this phenomenon and, and all this other strange phenomena that preceded it uh, constitute something uh, an evolutionary process at work. Um, Whitley Strieber has remarked once, and I thought it was a, a very astute observation. He said, uh, "Maybe the UFO phenomenon is is nothing more than what evolution looks like to the conscious mind." And uh, that's kind of a cryptic statement, kind of causes you to kind of scratch your head and think about it for a second. But, um, you know, I think that's as good an explanation for the UFO phenomenon as, as any I've heard, quite quite honestly. And uh, it could be entirely wrong, but uh, I don't think that anyone has the answers. And that's one part of the UFO debate, such as it is, that I'm really dissatisfied with. Um, I, th- I think the, uh, the UFO debate has become uh, excessively polarized in favor of the extraterrestrial hypothesis. And uh, in the years since that has become um, 
the veritable gospel of, of this of this strange phenomenon, this strange going on. Is that is. is that because it's easier to comprehend? I think I think you hit the nail on the head. Yeah, I think it's easier to comprehend. It's kind of a knee jerk reaction. It makes sense. There's nothing wrong with it. And you know, we could be dealing with disparate phenomena that happen to you look the same to us. Um, you know, as as organisms with fairly limited uh, fairly limited uh, um, concepts at, at their disposal. But but yeah, I think uh, the extraterrestrial idea is the most logical. You know, you see something in the sky that you can't can't explain, and it appears to be a structured vehicle. Well, you know, you can you can r- rule out certain countries. If, you know, when this phenomenon began, it was Russia we were concerned about. Could these be Russian reconnaissance devices, or you know, bombers? What you know, what could they be? You know, we were able to rule out uh, terrestrial superpowers making these aircraft. So, well, they came from elsewhere, you know, outer space. So that became that became the you know the parting line, and soon after the the term flying saucer was replaced with UFO simply to make it seem more innocuous. But nonetheless, UFO still remains semantically linked with the idea of space visitors, and uh, certainly we could be being visited by beings from other planets. But uh, I don't think we have any conclusive proof of that. And when people discuss the UFO controversy, it's almost always in terms of extraterrestrials. And certainly, we should be talking about the possibility that we're being visited. Frankly, I'd be surprised if we weren't if we weren't visited occasionally. There's nothing ludicrous about that. And it's probably been ongoing. You know that. I would I would I would think it would be ongoing. But the UFO phenomenon, as we as we popularly um, see it and talk about it and see it in, on films and etc., um, doesn't conform to what I personally would expect. Um, an alien civilization from another star system um, to look like. Uh, the behavior is very conspicuous. It seems to draw deliberately draw attention to itself at the same time that it denies its own existence. Uh, we have cases like the Malmstrom Air Force Base case where these unknown objects hover over a nuclear installation and turn off the missiles one by one. You know, this is quite dramatic. And uh, why would an alien civilization, uh, some sort of arbitrarily advanced extraterrestrial species, what interest would they have in doing something like this? Uh, if we share the planet with, with an indigenous humanoid intelligence, or indigenous intelligence, it wouldn't even necessarily have to be humanoid, um, that offers a possible explanation about why we see these, these acts, these uh, interference cases with military aircraft, uh, nuclear missile silos. You know, maybe they share the planet with us, and they are concerned for their own uh, well mean maybe maybe they're not doing it for us you know we're a very selfish species and when we encounter a case like the Malmstrom Air Force Base where these missiles were shut shut down by these mm-hmm. apparent glowing red objects um, we tend to think well you know they were showing us a message they were it was a demonstration for us to turn off our nuclear missiles because presumably the space people don't like nuclear war and well may, maybe an atomic weapon in, in a blast Mac yeah. tears apart. Uh, some something between space and time. Maybe it rips it to shreds, and it affects them somehow. Yeah, that, well, in the in the original in the early days, I should say of the of the UFO phenomenon, that was the idea behind the Roswell crash, that uh, they were attracted to that area of the Southwest because that's where we were testing out uh, nuclear uh, nuclear bombs, and they were frightened by that because uh, I don't know the, the radiation or something was uh, impacting the the cosmos in a way that we weren't able to appreciate at the time. 
And it's a valid point, and I suppose uh, you could you could fall back on Stan Friedman's point that uh, they were afraid that uh, we were becoming an aggressive space-faring species, and they wanted to uh, uh, see what was up before it got out of hand, before we started entering space in a more vigorous way. Um, well, there's no question. I think uh, you know, one glimpse of this planet at any given time you would say, my gosh, all they do is fight? Oh, yeah, I, I totally yeah. agree. But I, at the same time, you look at this planet, and I don't see us going anywhere anytime soon in any meaningful way. I mean, there might be a mission to Mars in 20 years. I mean, you're, you're hearing stories like this, and it's encouraging in, in a sense. But at the same time, it, it also highlights just how tenuous our presence in, in space is. Uh, I don't think we're going to be uh, visiting the, the interstellar neighborhood anytime soon. And... Uh, I mean, I, th- I think we're going. I think we're stuck on Earth for a while, unfortunately, for, for the most part. I mean, there might be a few people visiting the Moon and Mars in the next in the next fifty years, and that's great. But as far as being a menace to a, to a highly advanced species out there in space, I don't see it. I don't. I don't see how we would be a possible threat against a species even a hundred years in our in our advance, let alone millions of years, which is what we very well very well might be dealing with if these if these uh, alleged beings are indeed out there and, and hailing from other planets. Friday night we're doing a two-hour special because of the 50th anniversary of the Twilight Zone. And today I had an opportunity to interview uh, William Shatner uh, on tape, and we're going to play a portion of it Friday night, Mac. He's been on the program before. He was in two great Twilight Zone episodes, Nick of Time and then the scary one of uh, in in space, where he was uh, he was on a plane and uh, he saw the gremlins on the on the wing, and you know I I talked with him just about space because Star Star Trek of course uh, catapulted his career, and in in that area everyone was a federation. You know life was good. They were all there to take care of each other, and they band together. I'm not so sure that would happen. In, in this existence, are you? I don't know. Sometimes I think that uh, if species become sufficiently advanced to the point where they're out in the galaxy roaming around, space might be so big that, there, that tensions might not even exist in the first place simply because there's an excess of space. If you want to do something you, you enjoy, you can go elsewhere, that uh, there's enough room. I could be totally naive with with that, though, I mean, there are some phenomena in the in the in the galactic neighborhood that uh, that you could ex- possibly exploit for uh, for uh, energy energy resources. Yeah, and uh, maybe that maybe there, maybe there would be territorial conflicts in outer space. It seems very space opera, you know. But uh, why not? I mean, there very well could be, and uh, that's an idea that you encounter in the UFO literature again and again. Is that there are all these different species, the reptilians, like you mentioned, the uh, the Greys, the Nordics, whatever, and they're all fighting basically a big war for resources, and uh, Earth falls into the battlefield, and uh, we're basically innocent bystanders um, dealing with these forces beyond our control, and they're using us for DNA, et cetera. And, 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 then, and that's where it, I lose interest, frankly. I, I find that it, uh, having an interest in science fiction and, and having looked at, at, at stories going back a long way, I see the UFO phenomenon as it's commonly depicted in, in some publications now, kind of reaching back to the kind of golden age science fiction in a way that I find unappealing and unconvincing. But that doesn't mean that there's nothing going on. 
Mac, when we come back, let's talk about your After the Martian Apocalypse on Coast to Coast AM. Well, next hour, we'll open up the phone lines, give you an opportunity to chat with Mac Tonese a little bit later on. Last hour of the program, actress Daryl Henna and environmentalist and alternative energy guru David Bloom join us as we talk about, of course, alternative energy. All that's coming up on Coast to Coast AM. Let's take a little time back to talk about the Martian apocalypse as well and your theories, too, about the structures. And, of course, the moon as well. Ingo Swan, remote viewer, in his book Penetration, says he saw in one of his remote viewing sessions structures on the moon. Richard C. Hoagland, of course, not only believes in structures on Mars, but also the moon. You've uh, got your thoughts on the Mars as well. Go ahead. Absolutely. Uh, I think there are a number of locations on Mars that are nothing I would say qualifies as as proof. I don't think that we know there are artifacts on Mars, uh, of course, for our own, our own landers and rovers. But I do think that there is enough evidence, certainly, to qualify as, as a genuine scientific mystery. And uh, I've always been disappointed in the way it's treated in the, in the mainstream media. I'd like to see a more even-handed approach, and uh, uh, the condescending remarks typ- typical of the of the mainstream media are come as a come as a. I just I just find it discouraging. I think we can do better. I don't know why the notion is so ludicrous. Um, I suppose some of it comes from the fact that the so-called face on Mars looks face-like, and uh, that lends itself to claims of pareidolia, where, pareidolia, where we're seeing. You know, we're seeing a face because we're we're geared to see faces. It is like looking at cloud patterns, right? And it, you, yeah, you exactly. And there is an element of that. And uh, certainly, the people who say that, well, I don't see a face, they're not lying. There's a case to be made for it not being a face. It's a case to be made for it being a face. Um, there is there is a physiological predisposition to see faces, and but there's also a, a, a parallel. A parallel or orthogonal phenomenon that uh, where you see a face and you don't recognize it for a face, or broadly speaking, patterns, or we don't make the match. So the common skeptical argument against the face specifically is that, well, you know, you're seeing a face because you want to see a face, and and your you know your mind is 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 primed for that. Um, but uh, the, argue, the other argument that perhaps you're not seeing a face because your brain is primed not to, you don't hear much about that. So it's an interesting crash course in epistemology when you get into the, the whole Mars artifacts debate. And, uh, you know, there, there are formations that are just quite suggestive. And uh, I, I think that if we saw them on satellite images in, say, the Mideast, uh, that we would be all over them. When I was when I was writing the book, I found some images that were um, some photographs taken on Earth of Iran back in the 1920s or 30s. I can't remember which decade, but they were taken on an aerial um, aerial uh, reconnaissance mission mm-hmm. looking for archaeological sites. And some of the formations were just uh, they were so large that they could have passed for landforms, and they were so uh, incredibly symmetrical and everything. And I you know I couldn't help but look at these pictures and wonder, you know, if we saw these on Mars, would we give them a second look? You know, the fact that it's on another planet, we automatically dismiss it. Well, you know, it has to be geological. 
But why necessarily? Why, why the aversion to artifacts on other planets? I think that's a question that we should be asking. I mean, Carl Sagan, for example, uh, was quite vocal about uh, the chances for, for encountering artifacts on other planets of the solar system. He was vocal about finding things on the moon. He figured that if we were visited once every 20,000 years, then there was a good chance that we might detect some sort of automated platform on the moon, maybe to monitor our own development. And, uh, you know, that might have been the, the inspiration for, uh, for the monolith in, in 2001 uh, by Stanley yeah. Kubrick and, and Arthur C. Clarke. So these aren't exactly fringe ideas. Um, Eric von Daniken came along uh, and started basically crying wolf, you know, in a lot of cases. And I think that turned a lot of researchers off. And it's compelling to wonder what course this inquiry would have taken had the ancient astronaut movement not achieved the notoriety and the, and the, and the popularity that it did at the time. Can you imagine what it would be like for astronauts, Mac, either to go to the moon or go to Mars and see these structures? Let's assume, for example, that our astronauts didn't see them on the moon, but can you just imagine, first time perhaps? Oh, I mean, as, I can't think of a more awe-inspiring oh my cinematic God. moment, yeah. I mean... I, the old heart would be beating like crazy. Yeah, and it would it would change everything in a, in a stroke. It would change how we approach space. It would approach how we addressed our own history, our own uh, genetic legacy, our own historical trajectory. I mean, everything would change overnight if we could confirm, if we had irrefutable an irrefutable discovery of extraterrestrial ruins on another body in our in our um, solar system. And then on the same token, if we found an intact UFO or enough of a enough of an object that we could conclude that it did not originate on this planet but was intelligently constructed, uh, the same scenario would essentially play out. Uh, the question is, if the objects on Mars are artificial, and I think there's a good chance that some of them are. And that's the amazing thing about this, is that it's not just an exercise in, in asking questions. I think that there is some good evidence that, uh, that some might be. So if we were to, to find out that they were artificial, uh, the first question I would want to know is what level of sophistication, and what, what was the, the builder's level of sophistication? Were they more advanced than us? Were they a space-faring civilization that, you know, stopped on Mars for whatever reason and traveled on or whatever? Or did they evolve on Mars? Were they indigenous to the planet? You know, that would tell us a lot about uh, about uh, the, how civilizations develop, how intelligence arises. So that would open up a whole new science. And it sure uh, would. I can't think of anything more explosive and perhaps more damaging to our collective ego than that. Do you see the day where we truly will stumble across some of these artifacts and reveal it back to us, or do you think they'll cover it up? Well, I mean, there's reason to suspect that uh, some of it might be covered up immediately. Uh, even SETI, I wrote a piece for, um, uh, for a, a website devoted to uh, SETI not long ago, and uh, I, I posed the argument, let's say that the SETI project picked up an irrefutably extraterrestrial signal, something uh, in, obviously uh, created by an intelligent civilization. Uh, why would we 
why would we assume that this would immediately be made public? Now, I know that the SETI Institute, for example, has uh, there's the international charter about how, how the news would be disseminated among the astronomical community. Uh, so it might not be easy to cover up, but nevertheless, I can't help but think, why do we assume that an extraterrestrial signal would be uh, inherently benign or just uh, free of any sort of... Um, um, content that might be used for nefarious means if, if, if put to the wrong to put to the wrong purpose uh, for example I mean we always expect uh, something innocuous emanating from the depths of space like binary numbers or or whatever and that may very well be if it's simply a civilization's trying to get our attention but maybe they're trying to tell us something about uh, maybe they're not telling us that they're on their way and they're going to invade, but maybe they're warning us about some sort of stellar cataclysm in our in our niche of the galaxy. Maybe a star is going to explode and they're they're sending out a an omnidirectional broadcast to warn to warn emerging civilizations of the danger. Uh, what good would that do to the public to know that uh, uh, we've got three hundred years, you know, to live or something like that? I'm just obviously I'm just making this up, but you know, there are real reasons. There are damaging events happening all the time. Space is a very violent place. And I can easily envision uh, an extraterrestrial civilization or or a network of extraterrestrial civilizations that communicate among themselves with uh, beacons uh, and warn each other of, uh, of things that are things that are coming down the pike on the on the interstellar level, uh, things that might render entire entire star systems extinct. So, I mean, if, if we were to receive data that referred to an upcoming event of that kind of of that sort, for example, um, why would why would people why would that be divulged necessarily? You know, if it if it was just prime numbers or we are here or we were here rather, um, then I don't see a problem. Uh, but if you were to make that that information public immediately. And then you were to find a, a subtext to the message for claiming, you know, that there was some sort of strategic um, agenda afoot, even if it was for our own greater good. Uh, if it didn't serve, if it didn't serve our civilization uh, immediately, if there was no short-term imperative for, for releasing the information, uh, I could see it. I could see it being withheld on, on per, for purposes of national security, and that's. I think that's just a stark reality. I'd like to be I'd like to be wrong about that, but uh, and maybe I am wrong about that. But I think that's a, a perspective that is too often overlooked because we 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 think of SETI as being a very safe, um, existentially remote way of contacting aliens. You know, a radio signal seems seems safe enough. It seems like a very antiseptic way of making contact, but there's no uh, there's no physical nitty gritty behind it. But uh, I mean, information—that's uh, that's the uh, that's the crucial factor there. And and frankly, what what motive might a civilization have for sending out just a "we are here" broadcast? And that's the subject of much debate within within the uh, SETI within the SETI research community. What if SETI draws in the wrong kind of crowd? <laughs> you know, well, I think it's possible. Here we are. Even though our transmissions have been going out for years, what if they do? Beam it out and bring in the wrong crowd. Well, if they brought in the wrong crowd, there would be nothing we could do about it. I mean, I we we could we basically uh, would would have to stand back and let them, 
let the wrong crowd do its thing because I don't think there would be any reasonable chance of our technology uh, having the having the muster of confronting uh, an interstellar civilization, assuming it were to come here. If there are structures on Mars, let's say, Mac, did they, one, come here, two, never come here, they just simply died off, mm-hmm. or did we go there? Right, yeah, it's a chicken and egg question, and it's a great one, and it's a fun one to puzzle over. Uh, if they were a space-faring civilization that visited Mars, you'd have to ask yourself, well, why wouldn't they come to Earth? Uh, at one point, Mars and Earth were both very Earth-like, both very uh, hospitable. Um, so if, why, would the, why would they forsake Earth? Why would they stick on Mars? Uh, and that becomes an inquiry in its own right, you know, searching Earth's uh, fossil record for evidence of extraterrestrial visitation in the, in the very remote past. Um, did Earth produce some sort of technological space-faring civilization in the very remote past? Um, I think the odds are against it, and certainly no uh, mainstream anthropologist would would argue with me on that. But, uh, as Robert Anton Wilson said, the universe contains a maybe, and I can't absolutely rule that out. And if that were the case, I suppose that would tie in rather well with with the idea that we're sharing the planet with crypto-terrestrials. Maybe the crypto-terrestrials were ultimately Martian in origin, or maybe they're a remnant species of a civilization that once arose on Earth. Uh, went to Mars and now now exist in, in uh, very diminished numbers on the surface of on the surface of Earth. Might these crypto uh, terrestrials uh, are there are there cities dramatic? Let's say if they're underground, or are they living in caves? I see. I can't see yeah. a, a sophisticated civilization. Neither albeit, can I. You know, living in a cave and enjoying it. Right. No, I think it, I think that if we are sharing the planet with a with a sister species, a humanoid species that looks essentially like us, uh, you know, maybe with some differences, obviously, but uh, I don't think that they're living in caves necessarily. I don't think that they're um, uh, living in cities either. I don't think that they're living in you know grand opulent cities underground. That's a kind of a seductive notion from a from a Richard Shaver perspective for fans of the Hollow Earth. Mythos. Well, in, in Star Wars, they had incredible technology, Mac. I yeah. mean, incredible. Yet their houses were all st- like stone. <laughs> well, maybe that's the way it goes. Maybe that's how, maybe that happens some places. Maybe. But uh, I think that they live among us, at least to an extent. And here's, there's an interesting story. I, I, I uh, was in contact with a guy, uh, a scientist, and he had a, a very strange encounter with uh, what he described as little people that he encountered in a wooded area. And it was an arranged meeting, and he, he and I'm not saying this happened, because for all I know, he's lying to me, but I found his, what he was telling me compelling, and I asked some questions about it. But the story he painted was quite interesting. He said the people were little, and when he said he described them as little, he said, I mean just that, little. They weren't um, purport, disproportionate or otherwise strange or noteworthy, except that they were just extremely small. I mean, pig, pygmy size or three, well, yeah, three inches tall? About pygmy size he was talking about. And he All said right. that they spoke their own language, although they were adept at English. And uh, they would masquerade as normal humans. They would masquerade as uh, children and homeless people. And I got the sense that 
these beings, if they if they existed and I wasn't being put on, lived a kind of hobo-like existence. Uh, they also told them that their civilization predated the Indians in North America, which would make huh. them quite old indeed. Did they have technology? That was a question I uh, I, I wasn't able to uh, to answer. I don't know what level of technology. They certainly seem to be aware of our technology, and I speculated that maybe they relied on our technology to some extent. And it kind of fell into place for me because I was wondering, you know, if we're if we're sharing the species, sharing the, the planet with the sister species, we would seem to be the numerical victors, and we would be crowding these others off the stage, and they would justifiably be quite concerned about this. And this might explain um, huh. episodes of, uh, of abduction where um, reproductive material is taken. And maybe maybe there is some sort of um, some sort of genetic campaign underway, and it could be used to uh, reinvigorate the gene pool of, of a civilization that's been genetically compromised for thousands of years. Um, and is that the reason why they hide? And they, that could be, absolutely, that's why they hide. I mean, if if you were in their place, assuming there is a they, um, you know, this is this is yeah. necessarily an exercise in speculation, but uh, if you were in their place. Certainly, you'd be uh, you'd be laying low as, as as much as you could. Would you put Bigfoot in that category as as an extraterrestrial or as perhaps an earthbound entity? Good question. I don't know. I think there's a case to be made. Uh, Nick Redfern, I know, has had many illuminating things to say about the about the Bigfoot controversy. One thing that's strange about Bigfoot is that, well, on one hand, no other uh, no less a person than Jane Goodall has, has mentioned Bigfoot as a an, an interesting phenomenon worthy of study. And she sees nothing inconsistent with primatology that would preclude a large ape-like creature living in North America. So that's one interpretation. We could be dealing with a, a big animal, a big intelligent animal. Yeah. You know, a possible something that possibly forked off the evolutionary road, you know, a million years ago. On the other hand, uh, there are sightings of of hairy dwarves or even the larger, quote-unquote, Bigfoot-like entities seen in a, a ufological context uh, near near UFOs, near landed, apparent landed alien vehicles. And John Keel was very uh, um, keen on the idea that we were being misdirected by some sort of psychotronic technology, that whenever we saw monster sightings or UFO sightings, they usually occurred within a very general uh geographical proximity that we were seeing different aspects of the same phenomenon. And John Keel, I should probably note, uh, didn't think we were dealing with, with beings that had our, our best interests at heart. He saw the... Like, like David Jacobs. Like David Jacobs. He, was, he, came at the, he came at the phenomenon from a very different angle, but with the same, with the same cynicism that Jacobs has written about in, in his books. He thought that the human species was being exploited. And, of course, Charles Ford, it all kind of comes back to Charles Ford's seminal idea that uh, we are property. And, uh, you know, if we are property, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're not valuable property. And whether, whether we do, whether the human species is someone else's project in some respect or some sense, that's a question that uh, the crypto-terrestrial scenario begs an explanation for that. Um, you know, whether All right, well, we'll, we'll take phone calls. Whether they're, 
Let's take some calls when we come right back on Coast to Coast AM. After the Martian apocalypse and the crypto terrestrials, two of Max works. Let's open up the phone lines. Okay, this is the hour. We'll take your phone calls with Mac Tonys. Fire away at your stories about structures on Mars or perhaps what you've heard him say, crypto terrestrials hidden deep within the bowels of the planet. That'll be all next on Coast to Coast AM. Mac, if you could tackle one area of UFO research right now, fix it, solve it, what would that be? Where it comes from. (laughs) (laughs) Is it it, uh, from the... Just somehow generated by our minds? Is it from space? Is it some unrecognized aspect of existence? Uh, is it, you know, what is it? What is it? You know, I think that's, I think it would be everyone's, every uh, would be ufologist's question. Would you be able to get that answer? I don't know. I don't know if, I don't know if that's an answer that, that uh, our, our, our psychology would even be would would be able to encompass in a meaningful way. It could be that strange. It could be so strange um, that we're just not up to comprehending an answer. We might have to uh, evolve for a few million years before we're up to it. Or we might. Or maybe it's not for us. Maybe this is a phenomenon that will make sense to our mechanical predecessors or successors, rather. I'm sorry. All right, well, let's go to the phones. Let's pick it up first of all. Let's go west of the Rockies. Welcome to Coast to Coast. You're on the air. Where are you calling from? Los Angeles. Good. Go ahead, sir. Hi, George. Hi, Mac. Hi. Hi. I wanted to ask, um, a lot of people listening will say, well, this is fine. It's uh, speculation, but where does it lead us and what good does it do? What would you say to that uh, that opinion? I would say that uh, it advances... Uh, an inquiry that uh, that has haunted um, our history uh, from the from almost from its inception. I mean, you go back to ancient Sumeria, for example, and you find the the legend of the the Oans, this entity from the uh, from the water that supposedly imparted the wisdom how to create civilization. Um, there seems to be something going on, and I would uh, it seems to be physical, and it seems to be under some sort of intelligent control, um, that's a. It would be very. It would behoove the human species if we knew what we were dealing with in terms of whether this is a phenomenon that is um, here to help us in some way, something we could harness um, for our own advantage. Is, is it something that's that's impeding us? Something that's restricting our progress? Uh, it shows every sign of being intimately interested in the human experience. Uh, so that, to me, signals some alarm bells. It makes me wonder you know, why this inordinate interest in human affairs, if it's extraterrestrial, why? Uh, likewise, if, if, it's from, if it's generated here on Earth by, by some sort of intelligence that we don't recognize or don't understand, why this, why this interest? Because it seems suspicious, frankly. And uh, if we learn something about our own ability to comprehend our, our universe or, or our own perceptual abilities in the process, then that's, that's, that's gravy. That's, that's an extra, extra bonus that, that, uh, that, we should, that we should welcome. So there's, I think there are, are myriad benefits to understanding this phenomenon. 
One of its points, and this has been pointed out by others, is that this phenomenon seems to be to be leading us somewhere in the sense that it it progresses in in distinct incarnations, um, from phantom airships to ghost rockets, whatever. It seems to be one step ahead of what what we're presently capable of um, technologically. So it could be functioning as an evolutionary catalyst. It could be catalyzing or or accelerating our own sense of what is possible. And in that sense, it might be some sort of evolutionary trigger. So if we can isolate this, if we could say, this is what it is, then that would that could have profound effects for how not only how we think of ourselves as a technological species, but but how we propel ourselves into the future. Uh, All right, let's go to Jacksonville, California. Jake, you're up with us. Hey, Jake, go ahead. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Sure thing. Um, I just had a quick question um, about an old case. I didn't know if you all um, heard anything about it. I, I saw it on uh, the computer the other day, and I didn't ever hear any follow-up to it, you know, because it was probably 15 years ago, but it was the Guardian case. And uh, it was about the – I think it was in Canada or I whatever. Remember, I remember reading about that. In fact, that was that was big when I first got online. I remember seeing some hazy pictures. My impression was that the Guardian case was a hoax. Um, but don't quote me on that. I'd have to I'd have to go back and, and research that. It seemed a little too good to be true, quite honestly, to me at the time. And it's one of those things that if I saw it on YouTube now, I'd probably roll my eyes and uh, do a little clicking to figure out what was going on and, and, and who was doing it and why. But I'm tempted to say it's a hoax because that was my impression at the time. But um, I'd have to check. I was talking with a former Marine who said that the first time he saw a Harrier jet, now for those who don't know what they are, those are planes that will lift up, straight up, you know, just very uh, vertically, and then take off. And he said he saw it in a, for a distance, and he thought it was a UFO. Well, why wouldn't you? They're yeah. quite impressive, yeah. Which brings up the question, how many people are truly seen man-made craft thinking they're extraterrestrials and maybe all of them are man-made what do you think i wouldn't say all of them i think that there is uh, once you weed out all of the all of the uh, potential ifos there is a genuine core phenomenon there is a genuine burning question at the center of all this um, but there's no question uh, that a lot of witnesses are seeing man-made aircraft. And there are more and more man-made aircraft that would qualify as possible, uh, quote-unquote, flying saucers, uh, these disc-shaped drones that we deploy uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq, for example. Uh, there are some pretty ingenious designs out there. I don't think any of them would fool an observer for very long if they were very close. But from a distance, certainly they would qualify as your archetypal flying disc. And uh, so that's obviously a factor that uh, that needs to be dealt with. But does this explain the UFO phenomenon? Not a chance. Let's go to Dixon, Illinois. Simone, it's your turn. Hey, good morning. Thank you very much. Hi, George. And hi, Mac Tony. Hey there. Uh, in regards to the ETH and the Central Intelligence Agency, my question is, how extensive do you think the CIA's responsibility is in perpetrating the ETH and are they actively ongoing perpetrating it to the 
very day within ufology, perhaps in the, in the form of knock agents and so forth. And I'll hang up and listen. Thanks All very right, much. So I don't think it's CIA, Mac. I, I think yep. it's a black ops program. I well, think it's a group beyond the CIA. It could be both. I do think that the uh, that the UFO mythos, meaning the extraterrestrial mythos, has been perpetuated uh, by elements in the intelligence community to mask to mask interest or shun interest rather in um, secret projects. Um, Bob Lazar, for example, comes to mind as a possible um, someone who was utilized as a dis- part of the disinformation campaign. Um, there's the classic story of Paul Benowitz, which uh, Greg Bishop wrote about in his book, Project Beta, uh, an excellent book, um, talking about you know, why, why the intelligence community would uh, have an interest in, in forcing someone or encouraging someone to believe in uh, a literal alien invasion rather than tell them the, the relatively harmless truth that he'd simply stumbled across transmissions from a base that he wasn't supposed to be receiving transmissions from. So it's a great way not only to uh, make people, uh, lead people down the wrong way, but it, it the, the laughter curtain, which has been in place for decades, uh, pretty much ensures that, that the, uh, the mainstream media will ignore the story. So whenever I hear about uh, crash saucers or underground bases populated by aliens in the Southwest or whatever, I take an interest, not necessarily because I think it's true. I don't think those stories are true. Um, like I said earlier, the universe contains the maybe. Maybe the, you know, maybe there's some truth to it. I don't know. But I do uh, pay attention because I wonder if someone could be hiding something. And the same goes for UFO crashes. When I hear about a UFO crash, and uh, I guess I guess the case I'm thinking of in this in this particular instance is uh, is the Roswell crash. Uh, Nick Redfern's dug up some intriguing documents to suggest that maybe someone was trying to hide a, a rather heinous chapter of uh, in history dealing with human experimentation in the desert, and uh, to encourage people to think that a flying saucer from outer space had crashed would be preferable uh, to the ugly human truth. I'm not saying that that. Uh, Nick's, uh, Nick's hypothesis is necessarily the answer, but it's uh, it's certainly stimulating to me. So, if we're dealing with 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 an element of subterfuge, which I think I think all the evidence points points to the fact that we are, uh, what, who would be involved? I think would, uh, like you said, obviously a black budget uh, operation. But, no but, question about it. Yeah, but uh, who else would be in on that? That's a good question. You know, when Hynek changed his views. Yeah, uh, you know, from being a skeptic for Project Blue Book as their consultant to a believer to the fact that he set up a UFO studies group out of Chicago. I mean, that that told me, Mac, everything I wanted to know at that age, that there was something going on here. Yeah. Yeah, that, well, it, it kind of mirrors uh, Jacques Vallée's trajectory. He started off, you know, thinking this could be explained, although in his case he did think it could be explained as extraterrestrial. And uh, Hynek's views uh, kind of merged, and he became a little more metaphysical. And that's one thing that is profoundly interesting about this phenomenon, is that once you once you immerse yourself in, in, the, in the, the stories and the, and the data and the, uh, all of it, you're initially struck with the physicality of it. I mean, you realize that there, you know, there's something going on that leaves traces on the environment. Uh, it could be, maybe it's natural, maybe it's whatever, but it's physical. It's, it's not, it's not uh, a pop cultural delusion. Um, 
But the more you look into it and you start scraping away the veneer a little bit and start seeing seeing behind the curtain, there, there's a, a metaphysical element to it. And I think that's perhaps just the way our minds react to something so strange. Uh, but nevertheless, it suggests that there's a deeper level of meaning. There's a deeper ontology at work here. And that's one of the reasons that uh, I'm interested in in the work done by um, uh, researchers with, with DMT, uh, who people who people who uh, ingest this molecule report meetings with these strange little uh, elf-like um, cyborg-looking creatures. Yeah. I mean, I find that to be weird, don't you? Yeah, I mean, it's weird, but I, I don't think you can readily dismiss the parallels with uh, with the UFO phenomenon as we all understand it. So there, you know, there's some there are different options about what could be happening. In some cases, I'm not necessarily saying that all UFO cases are due to people tripping on uh, endogenous DMT, but uh, it could be part of it. And if we find out something interesting about the, the mechanics of our of our of our brains, then you know that's that's a that's a that's a bonus. You know, ufology offers avenues to learn about the universe that don't necessarily have anything to do with aliens from other planets or from from here on Earth, for that matter. And that's one of the interesting things about UFO research that is routinely overlooked um, by by self-proclaimed skeptics who would rather just dismiss it all. All right, it's time for Joshua now in San Diego. Josh, go ahead. Hey, how's it going? Okay, Joshua. Uh, well, uh, it's great to talk to you. I've been listening for a long time. Um, I just was calling. I, I've had so many experiences. Um, I'm almost, almost losing count. And uh, when I was younger, um, I used to uh, kind of, you know, enjoy the thought, thought of maybe getting visited and things like that. And the first uh, time times I saw uh, you know, lights in the sky with some friends and, you know, and a lot of people, you know, uh, they'll just kind of disregard it or laugh or whatever. And some people listen, you know, kind of whatever. But um, over the years, it has gotten kind of um, out of hand, kind of almost scary. And it it's not fun. Um, it's uh, it's terrifying at this point. And um, there's things, sometimes it's, it's so intense and so... Uh, these encounters that I've had, I'm, I'm not talking like uh, face-to-face. I have had, you know, seen a lot of weird people and I've had conversations with people that I, I definitely, I'm, I, I question whether or not they were human. And, Did and, they uh, human? Well, there was one time uh, <laughs> I saw these things, they, these people, they looked sort of um, Ethiopian, I guess you would say. It's, uh, they were almost, uh, they looked like, uh, they, looked, they looked Ethiopian, but they meaning like they were black, but they had sort of a green tinge to their skin, and uh, they were probably the most most terrifying of all the you know the ones that I've met. The other ones just look like normal people, but um, you know, it, I my own personal belief is um, you know is that well, my theory is that you know if if you're an animal and you're on a farm, in a, you know grazing or whatever, you know you're going to be content. You're going to be doing your thing. You're not going to see the farmer very often until the day comes. You've got to, it, you know, the farmer wants to get whatever they need from you. And, uh, that's been kind of my experience. I've had, you know, 
headaches ever since this has been happening. And have you been studied, Joshua, or have you gone to anybody for this? I'm, I'm terrified. I'm, I'm totally terrified. I, I've, I've um, kind of been warned, you know. Um, oh, just, uh, <clears throat> it's, it's not fun. And, uh, you know, I, I'm mainly calling because I know there's a lot of people out there experiencing this. And, you know, it's, it's like you, I've heard you say before, people need to talk about it. And, uh, I'm getting kind of emotional about it. But, well, well um, let me ask you, has this happened to anybody in your family as well? I'm wondering if this is just an ongoing thing with your family. Well, you know, what's weird is when I was a kid, um, I had this experience, you know, maybe you call it sleep paralysis, and I've had right. it since then. But uh, there was one instance um, when my dad, you know, my, we lived in Florida. My dad was in the military. We traveled all over, and I've, I've, I've seen him everywhere, uh, all over the United States, everywhere. And... Uh, there was this one instance where there was these cats in my room, and I woke up, and, and I, these cats were literally looking down at me from a corner shelf in my room. They had knocked some books off, and they were really upset about something. You know, a cat, when it's being threatened, it kind of hisses and does this whole thing. Yeah, but the strangest, the strangest thing is there's three of these on the corner shelf, and they were just all stopped, you know, looking. I was terrified as a kid, but I couldn't move. And uh, I don't know what you call willpower or whatever. I, I knocked over my lamp, and uh, it scared them. They they went on the floor, and my dad comes rushing in the room, and he chases these things out. And uh, he remembers this, okay? And and the weirdest thing was is that this happened many, many times, and the window in my room was always open. And uh, there's been other times, you know, where I've woken up and been paralyzed, and I thought maybe... Uh, that, you know, I've had cats before, so I, I was, you know, I'm dreaming, and I feel like there's something at the foot of my bed, and I wake, I wake up, I'm paralyzed. It moves, and one particular time, it 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 made a not a cat sound, and 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 I I I saw, I mean, when I chased this thing out of the room, whatever it was, it was in down the hall. It there was a window open in the back room, and um. Other people who've been with me have seen the lights. Other people have been sitting with me in a park or something, and weird people will come up and say things to me that at the time I don't know what it means. And that person next to me uh, says, hey, what the heck was that about? And then well, later- Mac, let's, let's get Mac's take on this only because we've got to get to the break pretty soon. And Mac, well, yeah, is, I mean, is his situation, is Joshua's situation unusual compared to other people? Well, I've read many other similar accounts, uh, even even up to the detail of the cats. I mean, I I don't like to I don't like to just come out with the the, the weird possibility first, but you know, just just because we're talking about weird things anyway, uh, some people would say you know the cats you know as a familiar animal or, or a screen memory or, or something like that. I know a guy who um, uh, is, is He's in the he's outdoors a lot, and uh, he had several a few occasions where he'd see numerous owls uh, around him a lot, and he thought this was really strange. And he was aware of the uh, of the screen memory idea, and he was he made a note to himself um, that what I'm seeing is are really owls. <laughs> well, maybe maybe they're shape shifting. Who knows? We'll be back with final phone calls in a moment on Coast to Coast AM. Well, next hour, actress Daryl Hannah joins us along with. Activist and environmentalist David Bloom as we talk about alternative energy. That'll be our next hour on Coast to Coast AM. When we come back, we'll take final phone calls, your calls, with Mac Tonys on Coast to Coast AM. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. I'm George Norrie. Mac Tonys, our special guest tonight. Final calls with Mac and your stories as well. Tell me a little bit about your work with the UFO documentary, Best Evidence. 
that was a, a documentary produced by Red Star Films of uh, Nova Scotia, Canada, and uh, it was a it was a good uh, bit by bit kind of uh, laying out the phenomenon in uh, an unbiased way. Um, the film was kind of produced with the idea of, like, here is the phenomenon for what it is. Uh, we're not drawing any conclusions about it. But this is, this is, these are 10 very good cases. Um, explain them if you can. And I was not featured in one of the UFO cases, per se, but I had a, a little commentary at the, at the end uh, taken here in Kansas City uh, up the street. But it was a, it's a good movie. I, it's, a good, it's a good film. It's set, not your typical... UFO movie in the sense that it's not your your usual format where you have a, a, a virulent debunker versus a, a completely wild-eyed believer, you know, for the sake of being fair and balanced. It was, right. uh, you know, the cases stand up for the, for the cases that they that they are, and uh, one of them was the the Malmstrom case. Um, uh, with the nuclear warheads going off one by one, certainly an interesting case. One of them was the the uh, um, case where a spy plane was 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 followed and and apparently tracked and even communicated electromagnetically with with uh, an unknown object. Certainly a certainly a puzzling case, and uh, there were others. But it's I, I particularly like the film. I didn't I didn't make the film by the way. It was made by uh, made by Paul Kimball. He's the director. But uh, I accompanied Paul for some of the filming, and it was had a really good time. I think it stands up as a, as a good documentary, and I hope it gets some some deserved airplay on on uh, in in the United States. Absolutely. Okay, let's go to the final calls. First time caller, we're going to Palmer, Alaska. Jay is up there. Go ahead, Jay. You're up. Yes. Hello. Hi. Yes. How are you doing this evening? Go ahead, Jay. Good. But I have to talk about an incident that happened back in the mid-'80s. Uh, if you want to see phenomena, you look up. But anyway, to make a long story short and fit this in, I worked at a satellite tracking station for 30 years, and I took care of microwave sites in remote areas of Alaska. Okay, very good. I was traveling up the highway into a site, uh, to a tower about 3,500 feet up a mountainside. The snow was heavy. The night before, it had cleared off. It was, this is in early December at about 85. The air is perfectly clear. It's 45 below zero. Going up, plowing the road to get to the top of this microwave site, suddenly everything lit up with blue-white pulsating light. My first impression, I froze. I said, they did it. A nuke has gone off. The entire countryside was lit up. Okay. I dropped my blade and pushed up to about 1,100, 1,200 feet where I had a turnout. I could look out, and across the face of the Alaska Range was a craft. I would estimate it at two to two and a half miles long. I would estimate it at about a half a mile to three-quarters of a mile wide, and it was slightly tilted as it went across the face of the mountain. The flashing, pulsating light had a diameter of about 50 to 75 miles in all directions. I watched this craft silently as it went across the face of Mount McKinley at about 18,000 feet. I was no more than 25 miles from this craft, and this was a craft. I watched it for at least 10 to 12 minutes. It wasn't traveling that fast. 
It was seen in Catwell, which is 100 miles away, about 10 minutes before I saw it 100 miles further south. Okay? The last time I see it, it's going out over the ocean about 60 miles north of Anchorage, Alaska. And I watched it go out of sight. Now, what's amazing about this, I reported this to a paper in Fairbanks, right? Okay. They took my call. This is on a, on a Friday night, all right? I, was, I spent the night in Cantwell. What's amazing is this craft was never reported by anyone else in Alaska but me. I know that Clear Air Force Base, which is an Air Force base about 300 miles from where I live in Palmer, north, just this side of Fairbanks, that they scrambled jets and could not get close to it. I heard that scuttlebutt through the line a few days later. Now, when I got back to the satellite station where I worked, they were making fun of me. I saw the light and all this kind of stuff. I didn't say anything. Could it have been mistaken for the Aurora? Oh, no, my friend. I watched this craft. Just a minute. I'll finish this story. Okay, that, that night... Two truck drivers pulled into a, it's about 7 o'clock at night. They pulled in, came into the cafe on the highway where I had stopped in there in Cantwell. And one said to the other, hey, Joe, did you, what did you think that thing was? There were two different drivers and two different trucks. <laughs> and he said, my God, I don't know. He said, but it scared the hell out of me. Did you see the light from it? I walked over and asked him. I said, what did you guys see? Like I hadn't seen anything myself. Yeah, yeah. And they told me. They gave me what they saw. Then... Two people from Cantwell that I know, one guy that owns the town of Cantwell, and a guy there named Ray Atkins walked in. And, I, and they said, we're talking about it. I walked over to them. They said, John, it came right over us. You know, we so were, people saw it, but they just didn't report it. Well, that's what's, that's, Alaska's a small state, and a lot of stuff happens. But the final thing on this craft was, later, a week or so later, the news hit the airwaves that this craft was seen in seven countries. It had come across Russia and came over the Bering Straits. Alaska is very sparsely populated, and where it came from were just villages, just Arctic villages and things, as it came down the Alaska Range. But how in the heck could you hide something like this if this was something the U.S. government had or the military had? That's impossible. Nothing that big, Jay. And what year was this about? Well, you know, I had the uh, I had the clipping from the paper for a long time. I lived in Talkeetna. I moved to Palmer. Okay, yeah. Talkeetna, Alaska. We built the first earth station there and sent a signal around the world out of Talkeetna, Alaska, a village of about five 600 people at the time, through the Communications Satellite Corporation. And we built seven earth seven Earth stations across the world and sent that signal. We put the first live signal on the satellite, Aurora 1, out of Alaska in 1970. Okay, and that's where I work. But anyway, th that information about that was, was kind of blown over, you know, about that incident. And I asked several people that saw it, said, yeah, it looked like a big arc in the sky from where they were. But I saw this craft completely for at least 10 to 12 minutes. And again, what, what year, Jay? I would say it was 84, 85. I could find 84. out. I could dig through the archives. Yeah, if, if, you, if you could, because I'd, want to tr I'd like to track that. Now, is there any way, Mac, that people would you know, see clouds and think this is a huge craft? 
I don't think so. This was an incredible description. Yeah, I, I would agree. I also find it significant that it was seen leaving across the ocean. Uh, if you wanted to hide something, and let's say it wasn't made by us, but if you wanted to hide something, the Earth is mostly ocean. And there are a number of, of very, very credible reports of exotic vehicles entering and exiting bodies of water. And uh, that's actually a notion that I, that I play with in the crypto-terrestrials, is, uh, is that we could be sharing the planet with beings that are primarily aquatic, at least in the sense of living underwater, um, not, not having evolved there. But uh, what, a, what a great place for a, for a remote base if, if, you wanted to, uh, if you wanted to live nearby and keep an eye on the, on the human population, and, but, uh, but stay out of its hair. I distinctly remember a case where a number of countries reported seeing a huge object. This could be the one. I've, to... Yeah, I've, 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 it was, I, I, I was wanting to say it was one of the cases that was in best evidence, but after the size of it doesn't, doesn't fit. But Let's go to I... Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Dave, go ahead. You're up with us. Mac, George, can I coin a phrase of one of our favorite sci-fi guys? Fascinating. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay. I was born in Chester, Pennsylvania in 1958. We moved to Westtown, Pennsylvania in 1962. That's when it all started for me. Farmland all around, easy place for a craft to land. I started getting visitations for what I called the little people. And Mom goes, honey, you were dreaming. And I go, Mom, I wasn't dreaming. Okay, the encounters happen regularly, every once every couple of months, twice every couple of months. They just, re- they just let me remember this one specific time. There was three beings in my room, one to my right, one at the foot of my bed, and one to my left, which I felt was female, so we'll call her she. She put her hand on my arm and said, we've seen you before and we'll see you again. Okay, boom, back to sleep. Fast forward to my adulthood. Went to my dentist, get a routine x-ray, comes back. He says, have you ever had brain surgery? I go, no. He says, well, there's something in your nasal passage. You looked at the x-ray. Te- x-ray tech looked at the x-ray. I looked at the x-ray. There's definitely something there. Fast forward a little more. I go back to the dentist. I go, oh, let's see the x-ray. I want to, you know, see if it's there. He goes, it's not on the x-ray. Hmm. So I'm thinking like, okay, maybe government, maybe alien. I don't know, but it disappeared. So It was, was there, but it was gone. That's it. That is weird. Yeah, that is weird. I mean, do you think it was the government or do you think it was the aliens that did it, you know? <laughs> that's, that's a good guess, Mac. Well, yeah. the, the implant phenomenon is, is interesting because... A lot of the times when they extract these things, it's like it's nothing that points the arrow at exotic technology. It's like some weird, maybe it has some anomalous properties, but it's nothing that we couldn't manufacture if we really wanted to. So it almost makes me wonder if, if the implant phenomenon, much like some of the UFO phenomenon itself, is essentially a, a, maybe a diversion of some kind to make us think that something's happening. Uh, there's an element of theater that you find in UFO cases and occupant cases that uh, intrigues me a great deal. Uh, even the, the fact that UFOs have such bright flashing lights in so many, in so many reports, um, it's almost like these craft want to be seen or they make themselves seen to just a few people at a time or, or whatever. And uh, elements of the implant mystery kind of lend themselves to a similar interpretation. It makes me wonder if, if that object had been removed, if, we, if we'd find anything that would really resolve the UFO uh, implant controversy, I, I would be tempted to say it wouldn't. It would just be another weird little thing. Uh, 
But yeah, the, the implant phenomenon is, is, is fascinating because I, I do think that objects are being removed, uh, whether they're technologically sophisticated objects or essentially little little placeholders, little mischievous uh, uh, post-it notes or something. I, yeah, I don't know. Let's go to Ontario, Canada on the international line, Mac. We've got Greg there. Greg, go ahead. Good morning. Um, during during the last segment, both of you gentlemen made comments about uh, humans being a technological species and also about people not being able to recognize uh, different kinds of aircraft. Uh, for example, you mentioned the Harrier jump jet. Um, I would submit that we're actually not a technological species because even though we use a lot of it, uh, most people don't understand it. That's very true. Uh, Robert Heinlein uh, had a famous line that we are, uh, uh, he said, specialization is for insects. Humans need to uh, to branch out and be able to do a little bit of everything. And we have a very, a very small minority of our population that's actually adept at technology. The rest of it just kind of blindly use it, and it might as well be magic for all we know. Uh, I know that's certainly the case uh, well, with parts of my computer and my cell phone. I understand the idea behind it. Uh, Carl Sagan made the made a, a nice analogy. If we took a TV back to Victorian England, gave it to the top engineers at the time, and said, uh, build this for us, you know, they might be able to understand some of the mechanisms involved. You know, they'd understand, for example, that the, the beans on the screen, uh, assuming there was a TV signal, weren't real people, if there was an image. But they wouldn't even be able to begin to, to, build, the, to build a TV in Victorian England. So we're presented with uh, possibly much the same thing today with the UFO phenomenon, and and certainly so few of us are so are, are so schooled in in the workings of technology. Um, it's almost as if a symbiosis has been reached. We've reached technology is almost kind of an organism in its own right, and that's one of the that's actually one of the one of the things that makes me think that uh, we will begin to merge on an organic level in the, in the next 100 years. In fact, I would submit that uh, we, will, we will ultimately have to in order to survive. Let's go to Panama City, Florida. Alex, east of the Rockies, there you are. Go ahead, Alex. Hey, um, I wanted to ask, uh, I just want to let you know that uh, that previous caller that had been talking about, uh, you know, he was having the night paralysis and whatever, um, you know, I went through that a lot when uh, when I was younger, and it finally stopped when I was about 22. But um, the question that I had was, uh, you, you were talking about structures on the moon, and I know I don't really trust a whole lot that I see on YouTube, but I came across a video where Neil, it was supposedly Neil Armstrong, one of the Apollo, you know, astronauts, and they were walking around on the surface of the moon, and he says, and he's talking to ground control, and he says, hey, do you guys see these structures? And, it, I mean, it looks like, you know, an apartment complex or something like that, abandoned, but, you know, that kind of a structure. And ground control's like, yes, we know about it. Go to the left. And he keeps moving towards it and, you know, saying, no, no, do you guys see this? And they keep telling him, yes, we know about it. Go the other way. And, um, and I was also wondering if you knew that there was any truth to him saying, uh, Neil Armstrong saying, you know, that they had uh, come across, some entities on the moon, and had pretty much been told, hey, leave and don't come back. And that's also kind of why Buzz Aldrin is like, we don't need to go back to the moon. We already know all about it. Let's go to Mars. Well, Buzz Aldrin, in, in a recent interview, made made reference to uh, uh, a fairly enigmatic structure on the on the surface of Phobos, 
It's basically the steeple-like protrusion on an otherwise very flat, rounded moon. And uh, to the best of my knowledge, this strange feature was identified by Efrain Palermo, um, his website's palermoproject.com, he's an independent Mars researcher. And uh, I found that interesting that Aldrin would specifically mention this particular feature. And when I say structure, I don't mean that it was necessarily built by anybody, but it, it is odd, and it definitely looks like it, you know, a candidate and anomaly. It's certainly classified as such. As for the as for the videos of, of Armstrong, I I've read reports like that in in sources that are not very credible. I've never seen any. I'd I'd, I'd have to see the original broadcast or, or listen to the original broadcast to make any sort of judgment on that. I'm. I've got to say I'm extraordinarily skeptical of the whole aliens on the moon thing. Um, there's a certain seductive logic to it, I suppose, but I've never seen anything that would uh, make me make me think that there's any any factual basis to it. Okay, thanks, Alex. Let's take. Uh, well, I don't know. Maybe we can squeeze one more in for you, John. Time for a quick uh, question. Go ahead. Uh, yes, this is John in California. Uh, earlier, he'd mentioned that. You were thinking the Greys were robots. Uh, yes. Uh, my question is: Is why uh, why couldn't they be genetic robots? Uh, kind of like the HG Wells mm-hmm. uh, cross contamination sure. protection. Absolutely. Where they, there's been instances where they've been kind of warm towards humans, kind of had human characteristics, where they've kind of learned using our DNA to be more compassionate. Well, it's kind of, it's kind of like where you where do you draw the line between uh, replicants, or excuse me, where do you draw the line between between human and robot? Oh, you know, on, a, on a certain level, a living organism is is a very complex machine. Uh, I think the replicant word. I, think I dropped the replicant. <laughs> the word replicant. Well, they can they can definitely they can definitely be uh, part uh, part biological and part machine. Indeed, Mac. Thank you so much. Websites linked up at coasttocoastam.com. We'll be back. 